0: Peace be with you. And also with you. You made it. <laughs> Way to hang in there. Uh, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. As Martin said, we are, t- we are continuing our series through the book of Exodus today. The book of Exodus tells the story of Israel's divinely orchestrated deliverance from slavery for the purpose of serving as God's chosen priestly kingdom in the midst of the nation's. There's a lot going on in that sentence, but that's okay because we're taking 16 weeks to find out what we mean by that. The Exodus reveals for all God's people, both then and now, what it means to be redeemed by God and what it means to worship and serve Him. So, as we've said, number one, the Exodus is our story. This is the history of God's people. And number two, the Exodus was written for our instruction. The Bible invites us to apply this narrative directly to our lives as 21st century Christians. And today we're going to apply the narrative directly to the sacrament of baptism, and more specifically, to our own baptisms. I believe viewing baptism through the lens of the Exodus can change the way we see everything. But before we get into the text, I want to explain something briefly. Whenever you read through the Old Testament um, and you see the word, the, the English word Lord, it's usually referring to the name Yahweh. In Exodus chapter six, God is speaking to Moses and he says, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Actually, I think it ought to say, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. So what, what's, what's the big deal? Well, for one, Lord is not a name, unless you're talking about the Grammy award-winning pop star, but, but she spells it with an E, and that's beside the point. Lord is a title. Lord is a title. And so when God says, my name is Yahweh, and we translate it, my name is the Lord, we've kind of just changed the meaning of the text. Plus, Yahweh is much more personal than the word that we usually, usually translate as God, The God of the Exodus is not a distant Lord executing justice from His throne in the heavens. No. The God of the Exodus has a name, Yahweh. Yahweh comes to dwell with His people, to fight their battles, to lead them by cloud and by fire. Yahweh is personally present. And so, I I want to use the name Yahweh instead of Lord today because I I don't want us to miss out on the intimate nature of God's relationship with His people. He does not cast the Egyptian army into the sea because He hates Egyptians. He casts the Egyptian army into the sea because He loves His people like a good father. He is personally present. Okay? Okay. Last week, we read about the people of Israel departing from Egypt accompanied by an untold number of Egyptians and huge amounts of Egyptian wealth. And this mixed multitude of Israelite and non-Israelite is led by a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire by night. Verse 21, and Yahweh went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So Yahweh was in the pillar of cloud and fire. He was right there with them. The pillar did not merely represent God's presence. The pillar was God's presence manifested for Israel to see and remember and consider. Surely they they had nothing else to fear, right? Right? But as we'll see, Yahweh's military strategy is going to put their confidence to the test. He actually instructs Moses to lead the people into a dead end. Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp by the sea. What sea? The Red Sea. Or in Hebrew, the Sea of Reeds. And what does that call to mind? Anybody? Moses. Moses. Back in chapter 1, Pharaoh decreed that every son born to the Hebrews should be cast into the Nile. And in chapter 2, Moses' mother lays him in a basket and places it among the reeds. So Moses was saved through a sea of reeds, and now Israel is going to be saved through a sea of reeds. At the same time, Pharaoh and his army are going to suffer the same fate That they inflicted upon innocent Hebrew children. Chapter chapter 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh. Jump to verse 15. Yahweh said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Okay, so the people of Israel have departed from from Egypt but they're not yet enjoying their freedom. Before they can enjoy true freedom, their their enemies have to be destroyed. Before they can enjoy true freedom, they're going to have to pass through the sea. It's a bit tough for modern people to grasp the gravity of this situation. Usually when we come to a body of water, we simply cross it. We, We take a bridge or a tunnel or an airplane, but In in the ancient world of the Bible, bodies of water truly divided one land from another. And so when you cross a body of water, you, you are typically crossing into a whole new country altogether. And so the people of Israel were justifiably afraid. They could have kept running, but Yahweh had told them to turn around and encamp by the sea. And so either Yahweh is going to deliver them or they are going to die. It was that simple. Verse 19 Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So Yahweh places Himself in between His people and their enemies. He stands in the gap. He delivers them. He fights their battles. He secures their salvation and freedom. And the text at at this point is not entirely clear. Some have suggested that there were two separate pillars, one pillar of cloud and one pillar of fire. The pillar of cloud covered the Egyptians. The pillar of fire led the Israelites but actually I think the pillar of cloud is the pillar of fire. The pillar moves in between Israel and Egypt, casting light upon the Israelites and casting darkness upon the Egyptians. The Egyptian army is immobilized by total darkness, and the people of Israel are allowed to continue their journey. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea And Yahweh drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The next morning, as the pillar of cloud is lifted, the Egyptian army pursues the people of Israel into the sea. You probably know the story. We did just read it. Verse 28. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. And so the waters part, and Israel is delivered. And then the waters return, and the Egyptian army is destroyed. The very same water, which for God's people meant deliverance, for God's enemies meant destruction. Israel passes through the sea at night, but the fire of Yahweh lights their path. And so, what looks to them like darkness and death is actually a path to freedom. And so, there's, there's clearly a lot of symbolism built into the narrative here. And as I mentioned earlier, we're going to see what it means for our baptisms. But before we do that, I, I want to jump backward in time to the creation account. This is Genesis 1, verse 6. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And then verse 9. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. So, when God separates water from water to form dry land, it's an act of creation. That means that the flood is to be understood as an act a divine act of decreation and then as the floodwaters recede and dry land appears again god is bringing forth a new creation noah entered into new creation creation decreation new creation and so as israel passes through the sea they are entering into a new creation. They're entering into a whole new world that had never been open to them before. And this is true of many water crossings in the Bible. Water crossings often represent the beginning of a new era. This is a moment of transition. Again, Noah passed through the water into a new creation. Well, Jacob passed through water into the promised land. Joshua passed through water into the promised land. John baptized his disciples in preparation for a new kingdom. In fact, Jesus was baptized by John in the same river crossed by both Jacob and Joshua. So the implication is that Jesus is being baptized as a new Israel. The nation of Israel is recreated in the body of Jesus Christ. The body of Jesus Christ is decreated by crucifixion and death, and the body of Jesus Christ is resurrected, emerging from the grave into new creation. Creation, decreation, new creation. And when we are baptized, it signals our union with the body of Jesus as the true Israel. Baptism is a ritual washing that signals our union with Christ, Romans 6, 1 Corinthians 10, Colossians 2, our adoption into the family of God, Matthew 28, Galatians 3, our cleansing from sin, 1 Corinthians 6, Titus 3, and our entrance into the covenant community of the church, 1 Corinthians 12. And I could keep going, but this is what we learn from Exodus chapter 14 the waters have once again parted for the people of God. By the death and resurrection of Jesus, a new creation has been launched, and anyone who desires to join King Jesus in the work of new creation is called to be baptized into His body as the true Israel. The Passover and the parting of the seas marked the birth of a new nation. This is a brand new entity under the sovereign rule of Yahweh, who we now know by the name Jesus, also known as Yeshua or Yahshua, meaning Yah saves, Yahweh saves. When we are baptized, we are grafted into that nation. We are baptized into the church, which is a real world entity under the sovereign rule of King Jesus. Our baptisms remind us and and declare to the world that we live under the sovereign rule of Yahweh, who has revealed himself at last in the face of Jesus, whose name means Yahweh saves. The nation of Israel was a real world entity, and the church is a real world entity. It's not an invisible entity, it's you and me, right here in the flesh. And so, it's fitting that the waters of baptism are applied to our real-world bodies. Because Christianity is not just a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the hands and the feet and the eyes and the mouth and the mind. Christianity is a real-world religion. New creation is coming to the real world. And so in baptism, we celebrate the sweeping away of our old slave masters, sin and death. As we are delivered and reborn, our enemies are swept away. and that The same water that marks our cleansing and redemption marks the, the destruction of sin and death. And so I think it's very important to remember that baptism is first and foremost an act of God. Much like the Red Sea crossing was first and foremost an act of God. If you view your baptism as an act of God, it can be a powerful source of confidence and assurance. Yes, we we are the ones actually passing through the water, but God is the creator of water, and He's the one parting the water for us. God speaks to us in our baptisms. He says, you are my cherished child. I have won the victory on your behalf. I have cleansed you by water and by the Holy Spirit so that you can join my family and enter into my household and feast at my table. This means that baptism is not primarily a promise we make to God or something that we are declaring to God. Baptism is primarily, first and foremost, a promise God makes to you. I love you. You are my child. By the death and resurrection of Jesus, you are saved. Believe it. And from this place of assurance, we can step out into the wilderness of this life. We're going to talk about that next week in Exodus chapter 16. Because Jesus has triumphed over our enemies, we can wage war against the sin and death that remain, remains in us and remains in the world around us. We can lay down our lives. We can offer ourselves as living sacrifices. We can present our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. Remembering God's promise to you in your baptism can help you to navigate the ups and downs of life in this world there are going to be easy days and there are going to be hard days. There are going to be happy days and there are going to be sad days. There are going to be days where you feel like God's child and there are going to be days when you don't. But the promise of God to you in your baptism doesn't change. And so you can persevere. If we fail to see that God is active in our baptisms, I really do think we're in danger of missing the point because Christian baptism is the fulfillment of every water crossing you read about in Scripture, especially this one, especially the crossing of the Red Sea in the Exodus. Through baptism, the church is revealed as a mixed multitude, constituting a brand new entity, born again by divine deliverance into a brand new world. And we are led by the pillar of the Holy Spirit, who has spoken to us in the Scriptures, and we're going to follow Him wherever He goes. Having been liberated from the pharaohs of sin and death, having been liberated from Satan and his army of darkness, the Holy Spirit leads us through the wilderness, and He feeds us bread from heaven. He gives us wine from the kingdom coming. He writes the law upon our hearts. He teaches us to obey and to follow in the footsteps of the true Israel, Jesus, who literally loved the world to death. And so we die to ourselves, and we live in Christ. We live for one another, and we live for our neighbors, and we live for the nations. And whether we prosper in that, or we suffer in that, we can still sing with joy the same song that Israel sang having crossed the sea. It's the song of Moses. We find it in Exodus chapter 15. This is what they sang after passing through the sea. And interestingly, we see the saints singing this song in Revelation chapter 15. The implication there is that this song will forever be relevant for God's people. It's relevant for us right now, for you. I will sing to Yahweh, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. So what does what your baptism mean? It means that the waters of death have parted for you, all of you. Your baptism is a perpetual reminder to you, a word from God to you in the form of a ritual washing. He wants to remind you daily that the waters of death have parted for you. In the midst of the sea, Jesus stretched out His arms on the cross to provide a dry path forward. And so we follow Him through the sea. We follow Him through the wilderness. We follow Him into new creation. Your baptism ought to be a means of God's grace to you for the rest of your life. If you have been baptized, never forget it, not for a single hour. If you were baptized as an infant, that's really beside the point. Never forget that you are a baptized person. And if you have not been baptized, know that Yahweh has parted the waters for you too. From where you sit, Christianity may look like death and darkness, but it's actually a dry path to freedom under the sovereign rule of a good, good king. So, come to Him. Brothers and sisters, you are God's cherished children. Jesus has won the victory for you. You live by His Spirit. You belong to His church. You are citizens in His kingdom. You are priests in His temple. And glory awaits you when He returns to bring to completion the new creation that He has begun. Believe that and persevere. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, You are the God above all gods. You are all-powerful, and yet You are personally loving. And we praise You for getting the glory over our enemies. Jesus, you stretched out your hands on the cross, you parted the waters of death, you lead us into freedom. We praise you for your humility and your sacrifice. Holy Spirit, continue to lead us through the wilderness of this life. Keep us faithful until the end, and we praise you for your presence here. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.